You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Today's reading is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'll give you all a moment to turn in your Bibles or devices. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires. <clears throat> but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Antonio. Cat, praise team. My name is Tim. I serve here as lead pastor, and it's a delight to be with you. And greetings to those joining on live stream as well. It was a fun week where our family got to go public about my wife's pregnancy, which was a lot of fun. Um, one of the things that my daughter, she's four, Izzy, said is, well, we already have a girl and a boy. It might be a puppy, <laughs> which is <laughs> one of those things we're like, we have to write that down. We have to remember that. But uh, we have been going through a series here at, uh, at EBF called Sojourners and Exiles in the book of First Peter. We look at what it means to live as believers in Jesus Christ between two worlds. And so we would invite you, if you haven't already, to turn to First Peter 4 um, to, to do so. And uh, I'd love to lead us in a word of prayer as we dive into God's word together. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning grateful for this time to worship you alongside one another, to hear from your word. Lord, we pray for those that have been impacted by recent flooding. Lord, we pray for the families that have lost loved ones. God, would you be their hope, their strength. Lord, even this weekend as we think about those that have, have given and sacrificed so much in our labor force, Lord, we pray that you would honor them. And Father, we we recognize that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So God, make us hungry for your word. 
May it nourish and strengthen us today. We thank you for the great gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ who is the very bread of heaven. We love you. Inspire us, illumine your word through your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Sam the Eagle, one of my favorite Muppets, has this line, I think in one of the first or second Muppet movies, you are all weirdos. I just want to be able to say that to all of you right now. You are, no, I'm sorry. You know, typically we don't like to be viewed as weird, although maybe, maybe some people do, I don't know. You can probably think of a time when you felt very much out of place, felt like a stranger perhaps in a foreign land. Well, here in 1 Peter 4, maybe you got a sense of this even as Antonio read the text. In verse 4, Peter includes an element of what we might call being weird, seeming out of place. When the gospel takes root in someone's life, people who are far from God might find that person strange. As a result of the dramatic change, the dramatic transformation of their lives. Those who live for God not only might be viewed as weirdos, but as Peter will go on to emphasize, must be willing to embrace the call to suffer as Jesus did, to count the personal cost that comes from following Jesus Christ, and to remember ultimately who the true judge is. In our time together this morning, we're going to explore what living for God looks like in verses one through six, then followed by what it means to live in light of the end in verses seven through 11. And these lists that Peter gives, the things that he calls out, are not meant to be an exhaustive list necessarily of what it means to live for God and to live in light of the end, but I think that they are instructive, they are representative of what these things mean. So, first, live for God by embracing the call to suffer like Christ. The word therefore here in verse one links the suffering of Christ that was part of his upward journey to victory in chapter three, verses 18 to 22, to, one, to this passage here. And the sufferings of Christ form the foundation of what it means to live for God. And the two commitments that Peter highlights in verses one through three. The first commitment is that we must resolve to suffer like Christ. Arm yourselves. In verse one is a military metaphor that refers to a soldier putting on armor and preparing for battle. It would be like saying gearing up now in this day and age, gearing up before going out on patrol. Arm yourselves with the same attitude means to think like Jesus did about obedience and suffering. He was convinced, as we saw last week, he gave the ultimate example of suffering for what is, suffering for what is right. Because Jesus went through everything we're going through and more, we should learn to think like him, to adopt the same mindset. Well, a tough question comes right off the bat here. What does whoever suffers in the body is done with sin mean? Could it mean something that it, those who really experience suffering will stop sinning? Well, when we turn to God in repentance and faith, one of the ways we might look at it here is that it is as if the nerve center of sin has been severed in our lives. Romans 6, 18 
kind of carries, it sheds more light on this. It says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. But even though the nerve center of sin is severed, the impulses to sin still remain. First John 1.8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, verse two actually goes on to explain more of what it means to be done with sin. Those who have had the nerve center of sin severed don't live purely for evil human desires. Instead, they live to or for the will of God. They live for the will of God. That's the second commitment. Let us live for the will of God. Picture a coin and two sides of that coin. What's presented here is like saying, on the one hand, not living for for evil human desires. And on the other hand, saying, living for the will of God. It's very much like what Peter says earlier in chapter one, verses 14 to 15. He writes, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. These desires are further spelled out in verse three, which is a description of how Peter's hearers once lived. You can just sense a bit of sarcasm even in the way that Peter writes. He says, you have spent enough time doing these things. And he uses the word pagan or Gentile, depending on your translation, to refer to those who are far from God. And what's interesting in this verse too is that all of the nouns that are listed here are plural and are used almost to describe like rounds of sinful activities that take place. The first five terms involve unrestrained desires and the common feature to them is a lack, a total lack of self-control. And you can even sense in these words here, there in verse three, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, parallels between those pagan practices then to now in the 21st century. We could say showing no moral restraint, various forms of addictions, binge drinking, wild parties, putting other things in place of God. Those who have been transformed by the power of the gospel should have nothing to do with these kinds of behaviors. That's, that's, I believe, what Peter is pointing out here. Instead, Christians are to live for the will of God. One takeaway to consider from this is that we should expect suffering as a normal part of the Christian life. Contrary to what some might teach, we are never promised a pain-free Christian life. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you look at the early church, Christianity flourished the most when it was being persecuted the most. And this is often true in other parts of the world today as well. In fact, even as society becomes more and more post-Christian, it could be that God is preparing us as believers in Jesus Christ for a more intense time of sharing in the sufferings of Christ and yet to see the church flourish even more. So let's gear up by having the mindset of Christ. Let's be prepared to preserve our witness no matter what comes our way. A second takeaway that arises from these first three verses is is this. A couple of big words, I realize, but let us contextualize without compromise. Let us contextualize without compromise. And hear me out on this. 
Contextualization basically involves going to where people are and translating the truth of the gospel in word and deed into forms and into understandable terms in that given context. Maybe a hallmark passage that explains this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.22 when he says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. But in doing this, some can easily slip into actually compromising their faith in the process. One example that comes to mind, maybe you've sensed the call to join a, a fraternity or sorority here at Northwestern in order to be a light for Christ among that particular community and context. But one thing that can happen is slipping into patterns, say, of, of binge drinking. Talk, talk about calling back to the, the list of desires that Peter has just said. And maybe in a way looking virtually indistinguishable from that particular context. That can be an element of potentially compromising one's faith. And so there's a lot more that could be said about this, but just as a reminder to us as a church, let us contextualize without compromise. Living for God by embracing, live for God by embracing the call to suffer like Jesus. Here's the second, the second way we live for God, and that is by being willing to count the personal cost. Verse four. The they here in verse four is referring to people who are far from God. And the reckless and wild living is a callback to that, those previous verses. And two personal costs arise from this verse alone. And that is the first, that people may be surprised at you. The phrase to join them here in verse four, they are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living. That phrase literally means to run with them. They are surprised when you do not run with them and participate in their lifestyle. Those who are far from God may be astonished at the transformation in you, especially if they knew you prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The second personal cost is this, people may mistreat you. Surprise can turn to disappointment, perhaps even anger, and as a result, they heap abuse on you, as Peter writes, in the form of insults and verbal abuse. A story that stood out to me, one that R.C. Sproul uh, gave in his book, The Holiness of God, he told the story of a time when Billy Graham was invited to play golf with President Ford and two PGA pros. And after the round of golf was finished, one of the other pros came up to the golfer and asked, hey, what was it like playing with the president and with Billy Graham? And the pro unleashed a torrent of cursing and in a disgusted manner said, I don't need Billy Graham stuffing religion down my throat and stormed off. Later on, after letting him cool down, the friend came back to this pro and asked quietly, was, was Billy a little rough on you out there? And this pro heaved an embarrassed sigh and said, no, he didn't even mention religion. I just had a bad round. I love that story. Sometimes by our mere presence, it can be enough to cause abuse. <laughs> um, I certainly experienced some, some forms of that even as, uh, as trying to live out a faithful gospel witness within the army, for instance, and just my, by my mere presence. I remember sitting in an NCO call and uh, the, 
the commander unleashing torrents of, uh, of curses. And after each one, he would say, sorry, Alan. And then he'd keep going and curse again and say, sorry, Alan. And then curse some more and say, sorry, Alan. I'm like, it's, I mean, I've heard it all. You don't have to apologize every time you curse, but maybe we should think about this. I don't know. Anyway, I digress. Question, though, for us to consider, though, is are people surprised by the way that we live? It could be that you don't know that many people who are far from God who would be surprised by the way you now live. Or it could be that you are living in a way, if you take a, a look, an honest look, that you're living in such a way that is maybe indistinguishable from the world around you so that no one may be surprised. We need to be asking the difficult question of whether anyone is surprised by the way that we live. And maybe second, along with this, is a question, are you willing to come alongside new believers as they wrestle with not only having come to recent faith in Jesus Christ, but the significant challenges that come with that, maybe through their maybe being rejected by family or struggling with old patterns that they face. For people who are new to the Christian faith, separating from old behaviors and lifestyles can cause all kinds of issues. And so as a community of faith, we must be willing to come alongside new believers to encourage to support them, to pray for them, to disciple them in their newfound faith, even as they perhaps face some of that confusion and hostility that comes from being transformed by the gospel. Third, live for God by remembering who the true judge is. Verses five to six. Peter emphasizes how we will have to give an account to God, the true judge. It is not up to us to judge he is the one that will set all things right. Even in the Old Testament, the final judgment is often portrayed in terms of a courtroom drama. Sometimes when I see, you know, passages like these, I hear those, those two tones from Law and Order, you know, ding, ding. The Bible should come with like an audio version or something, or like, uh, not an audio version, but like, um, oh, what do you call it? Like kids' books where they have the buttons that you press, you know? Judgment, dun, dun, I don't know. Patent that if you want, I guess. Well, the phrase, who is ready, shows that Peter saw God's judgment as coming, as coming soon. He is the judge of the living and the dead. His judge is universal in scope. No one can escape it. God will judge both those who are alive when Christ comes again and those who have already died before he returns. One tough question to consider here, particularly in verse six, is what does the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead mean? Well, in the context here, this most likely refers to people who had accepted the gospel at one point when they were alive, but they suffered persecution for their faith, and they were judged according to human standards, perhaps when they died at the hands of unbelievers. So living according to God in regard to the spirit means that they now enjoy the new life with God that is theirs in the spiritual realm because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So a couple takeaways to consider from this, considering God, remembering God as the true judges. Let us, O church, refuse to take matters into our own hands. Let us not try to be the judge. Remember, remember that they will have to give an account. It is not up to us. And this should be immensely freeing. God is the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But in light of that, we should be willing to proclaim the gospel at any cost. 
regardless of the suffering we might face, regardless of those who may mistreat us, regardless of those who seek to judge us according to human standards, we must be willing to both declare and do the gospel, remembering that we are not promised a pain-free Christian life. There will be challenges and pain, but we can rest knowing that God will make all things new for his own glory. We're gonna look more in the next verses that come about living in light of the end, and I think that flows from Peter's thinking here, but the church, one last thing to consider on this is that the church has spent so much time trying to tell the world, hey, we're, we're just like you, perhaps in an attempt to try to you know, make the gospel more attractive, maybe, maybe a good goal. But we've spent so much time trying to tell the world we're just like you. But if God has radically transformed us by the power of the gospel, we will never be the same. We will never be the same. So church, let us live for God by embracing the call to suffer like Jesus, by being willing to count the personal cost that comes from following him in the costly way. And let us remember, ultimately, who the true judge is. At the beginning of verse seven, as I mentioned, you can tell how this then moves Peter into thinking about what it means to live in light of the end. It says, the end of all things is near. His concern is that this time of giving an account is not a remote possibility, but an imminent certainty. But for the Christian, this is not something to dread. No, it's something to look forward to because Christ has paid it all. Christ has paid it all. The end of all things is near shows that Peter is thinking in terms of redemptive history. All the major events in God's master plan have taken place from creation, fall, the calling of Abraham, the exodus, the kingdom of Israel, exile in Babylon, the return, the birth of Christ, Christ's suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension to the Father's right hand where he is now seated, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the establishing of the church. Everything is marching toward the final chapter of redemptive history, that is, restoration. So Peter had a very real sense of the imminence of Christ's return. It could happen at any time, and the shortness of time being left is the motivation that he draws on here for Christians to live the rest of their lives for the will of God. How should we live in light of the end? Verses 7 through 11, Peter gives us four practical ways to live in light of the end. First, live in light of the end by being clear-minded so you can pray. These attitudes of the mind are the opposite of the sins that are described in verses three through five. And you can just hear echoes of what Peter wrote previously in chapter one, verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. The reason Peter gives for being alert and sober of mind is so that you can pray. Being clear-minded is an internal setting that opens the door for greater intimacy with God and greater connectedness in prayer. And Christians should be alert, should be aware of the things happening around them and to evaluate those things through the lens of the gospel in order especially to pray more effectively. 
couple things to consider here is that first takeaway is that we should guard against predicting on the one hand and packing it in on the other. Predicting and packing it in. Follow with me on this. Many have tried, maybe you even know some high-profile examples of those that have tried to predict exactly when Christ would return. Or maybe to say, this is, the, this is the beast, or this is the mark of the beast, or all these kinds of things. Maybe we see some of those things swirling around even in this, in this day and age. I've sat through those presentations before. I have roots, oh man, I have uh, roots in my home church of of, uh, of charts that span the entire platform. And for some reason, I remember an expandable pointer. I don't know why. You can imagine that. And then somebody saying, and then this will happen, and then this will happen, and then this will happen. Very confidently, right? Church, I just want to encourage us, instead of being on the planning committee, let's join the welcoming committee. Let's join the welcoming committee. Perhaps on the other side are those who might withdraw from the world and simply look to heaven, waiting for Jesus to return. And that danger is the danger of packing it in, and perhaps being rendered ineffective or not having a kingdom impact with their time remaining on earth. So let's guard against both predicting on the one hand and packing it in. And second, instead, be devoted to prayer. Be devoted to prayer. We are called to be alert and sober-minded so that we can be devoted to prayer. Prayer is especially important in the face of suffering and pain that we experience, as Peter emphasizes earlier. We are called to maximize the impact, our kingdom impact, while we anxiously await, eagerly await Christ's return. Here's the second way of living in light of the end. That is by prioritizing deep love for one another. Verse 8. By saying above all, here at the beginning, above all, love each other deeply. Peter gives the place of primacy to love. This echoes his earlier charge in chapter 122. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. The word for deeply here is fascinating. I, I'm curious who enjoyed watching the Summer Olympics that we just had. Any, anybody just have that on like nonstop? Man, believe it or not, the Winter Olympics are right around the corner, if you can fathom that, but here we are. Well, that word for deeply here, I picture an athlete because it was used to describe an athlete's muscles as they strain to win a competition. So for Christians to love one another deeply, it means that we show unselfish love and concern for people to the point that we strain, we give of ourselves self-sacrificially for the sake of others. The reason for loving one another is because love covers over a multitude of sins. Maybe another tough question that pops out here is, in what way does love cover a multitude of sins? I think there are echoes here of Proverbs 10, 12 that says, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. It is not talking about our love for one another actually forgiving sins. No, I, I think it has more to do with the forbearance that comes with love. Christian love is patient and forgiving toward the offenses of other Christians. Love does not condone sin, but it does cover sin in the sense that it doesn't broadcast it to everyone else within the community. 
The world is already looking for every opportunity to discredit Christianity. We don't need to be accusing one another and tearing apart the fabric of community from the inside. Maybe one example to give, um, even as we, our family was out west for a vacation, we experienced a lot of the haze going on from the forest fires taking place out there. Consider a fire, though, it, it rages as long as it has oxygen. But if you take away the oxygen, the fire dies down and, and acres of land are saved. Love takes the oxygen out of sin. Love takes the oxygen out of sin. When this happens, the blaze settles down. Acres of relationships are saved. Let's be committed, O church, to this kind of love. This kind of love. Let us strain to love one another. Love is the badge of the believer, as we know from John 13, 34 and 35. But love is often costly. Let's flex our muscles. Let's strain to love one another in a selfless and sacrificial way. Strain to love one another and take the oxygen out of sin. Love is the key to overlooking and forgetting the offenses that others commit. And we shouldn't gossip about one another's sins or slander them. We know, church, we need one another, especially as we struggle with what it means to live between two worlds. We need each other. Love, yes, takes sin seriously, but it also overlooks the faults of others. Live in light of the end by third, extending hospitality. Extending hospitality without complaining. Verse 9. Loving one another deeply finds practical expression in extending hospitality to others. In the first century, this hospitality meant receiving others, especially those who belong to the same faith. It meant giving travelers a place to stay and food to eat. And this was especially important as Christianity began to spread, extending hospitality to one another. You know, we often consider hospitality perhaps one of the spiritual gifts but here it is commanded of all believers as an extension of love for one another. And so there's no excuse, there's no way of saying, well, it's actually not one of my gifts. No, we're not let off the hook. Let us extend hospitality to one another. Over the years, Danielle and I have been able to do something we've called family dinner. Once a month, we've invited friends, neighbors, coworkers, some know Christ, some don't, over to enjoy a meal together. And often we ask the question, like, what are we celebrating? Whether it's maybe a new job or a promotion or a birthday or something like that. Um, of course, it's had to look different maybe during the pan pandemic. No more charcuterie, you know, where you grab things off the, off the board and uh, no more cramming 50 people into our house, I suppose. But one question maybe for you to consider is how might God be calling you to extend hospitality in this time and in this, in this space? Open your, open your home. My parents modeled this for me, actually by welcoming often uh, missionaries that were home on furlough, giving them a place to stay for a season, and that afforded the opportunity to hear lots of stories about how the gospel is advancing in other parts of the world. I loved that. But that just became a part of the, their ministry of hospitality. There are many creative ways that we can extend hospitality to others. And I think that is part and parcel to our vision here at EBF, to be a welcome home, to be a welcome home. 
It might mean serving on the connection team, you know, welcoming people in as they arrive here on Sunday mornings. It might mean making meals for those that have recently had a baby or might be experiencing hardship or have a loved one in the hospital. Church, let us pray and look for creative ways to practice hospitality with one another and with those in our community. So not only open your your home, but open your heart. Open your heart. Our hospitality is a reflection of the hospitality that God has first shown us. And to welcome people into the home without complaining means to have have an open heart for everyone. So let us open our heart to people, especially those that might need a little extra grace. Can we say that? (laughs) Have you heard the phrase EGR, extra grace required? Let us open our home and open our heart. And finally, use Live in light of the end by using your God-given gifts to serve others. Verses 10 and 11. You can kind of follow Paul's or Peter's train of thought here in looking at the gift of hospitality, but then in drawing attention to all of the gifts, whether it be speaking or serving. The implication is that every Christian has received at least one spiritual gift. And a gift is, a spiritual gift is simply any talent or ability that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and useful for building up the body of Christ. In Scripture, there are five different lists of gifts that are given. And I'm tempted, you know, like to put up the lists and like compare them and all that kind of stuff. But I think it could be, it could be that th- these are not necessarily an exhaustive list. But we're actually driven by the particular context in which that writer was writing. And the gifts that were needed or present within that particular body that he was writing to. Ultimately, though, Peter's concern is that these gifts not just be left on the shelf, but that they be put into practice and used to serve others. When we don't use our gift, the entire body suffers as a result. We are to serve others as faithful stewards. In the first century, a steward was someone who served as a household manager. That's kind of the concept behind this idea. The wealth belonged to the master, but they were charged with managing and distributing it according to the will of the master. And I think this is a powerful image for us too. The gifts don't belong to us. We are called to steward them. They flow from God's grace. Peter emphasizes the diversity of gifts and how we need each other within the body of Christ. As God's grace is richly varied, so are the gifts that flow from his grace. So those two major categories I mentioned that he gives are those gifts of speaking and of serving. I think there's still a lot of overlap, though. Speaking and the phrase, the very words of God in verse 11, I think alludes to this, include gifts like teaching, preaching, evangelism, singing, prophecy, And those who are called, those who speak are called to faithfully declare God's words, not theirs. God's words. Those who share God's word are are to see themselves as a megaphone for the text. But both serving, then let's look at serving with the strength that God provides in verse 11, includes gifts like mercy, giving, helps, administration, and service. And those who serve shouldn't try to do so out of their own strength. No, should do so with the strength that God supplies. He is to be the source 
of all grace and strength. Both speaking and serving are equally God-given and important. Can we say that? Equally God-given and important. The primary purpose being so that in all things, verse 11, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. So church, discover your gifts. Each Christian, I believe, has received at least one gift from God's grace, but we need to discover those gifts. And I think the gifts are best explored in the context of community. I think this is a great, I think this is a great opportunity for us, even in our ethos communities here at UBF, to help identify what each other's gifts are and then to practice those gifts, to flex those muscles a little bit. And so not only discover your gifts, but develop your gifts. Don't just keep it to yourself. Use it. Use it for the building up of the body and for the glory of God. I love seeing ministry teams here at EBF that put these gifts into practice. So experiment. Try one out for a season. Let us discover our gifts and let us develop our gifts. At the mention of Jesus' name, in verse 11, Peter launches into a doxology that ends really what is the main body of his letter here. When he writes at the end of verse 11, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever, amen. The praise, honor, and glory for everything we do should always be given to Jesus Christ. In the movie, The Avengers, Loki, the villain, if you can remember back to the first Avengers movie, Loki there, in speaking before this group of of people, says, you were made to be ruled. Well, hate to break it to him, but he got it pretty wrong. You were made for the glory of God. You were made for the glory of God. That is your primary purpose. We were made to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So church, let us live for God and let us live in light of the end, all for the glory of God. Live for God by embracing the call to suffer like Jesus, being willing to count the personal cost that may arise and remembering ultimately who the true judge is. And let us live in light of the end by being clear-minded so that we can pray, prioritizing deep love for one another, extending hospitality without grumbling, and using our God-given gifts to serve and to build up others, all for the glory of God. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the truth of your word, this challenging, convicting, and motivating word this morning. We pray that you would use this word, Lord, to turn the microscope upon our own hearts and our own lives. Lord, would you cause us to live every aspect of our lives to your glory? And would you cause us to live with the motivation of the reality, Lord Jesus, of your your near return? Help us to make the best use of the time. Father, ultimately, would every part of our lives, our work, our studies, our rest, Everything, Lord, would it be done to your glory. And Father, we ask that you might take these truths, that you would plant them deep within us, 
God, that they would not just end on these pages, but Lord, Lord, that they would translate from our head to our heart and to our hands. May we live out these truths to your glory. Lord, we love you. We do not say that enough. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name, looking forward to his return. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.